please do open your Bibles to Haggai. We're going to just carry on through Haggai and uh, pick it up in chapter 1, verse 12. It's on page 1,398 in the Brown Bibles. Now, last week we began in this somewhat obscure book in the Old Testament. I'm guessing some of you probably have never read it all the way through. Um, maybe some of you never even heard of it. So, this little book called Haggai, um, which is written by a man, unsurprisingly called Haggai, who uh, was a prophet in Israel in the 500s BC. So this book is all based in just a space of a few months in 520 BC. I tried to give you a little bit of the backdrop, but essentially it comes down to this. The people had been conquered and exiled to Babylon. They'd been brought back 19 years earlier before this book was written. And their land was a mess. Everything was a mess. And particularly, most importantly, the temple itself, the center of Israelite worship, was lying in ruins effectively. It had been stripped of all the valuables, the gold and the bronze, and all the things that made it so beautiful and ornate had been ripped out by Nebuchadnezzar. And what was left was a kind of a shell of what it had been before. But for these 19 years, the people of God had done very little to renovate and restore worship at the center of their hearts and their lives and their nationhood. And so this prophet Haggai comes in and starts to challenge them. And his preaching is really a call to renewed commitment to God. But on the, on the face of things, what that would look like was the physical rebuilding of the temple. And so the particular call is there in verse... Um, Verse 7 and 8, where God says to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills, and bring wood and build the house. If you're wondering why we have lumber on the screen, that's the tenuous connection for you. So um, go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. In this we have a picture of what the Christian life is meant to be about. It's centered on the worship of Jesus in his temple, which is his church, and the call for every Christian to reorient what their life is about and make it about Jesus, make it about his worship. Now, we're going to read from verse 12 to the end of the chapter, and I want to show you what God did in their hearts and how God works, the patterns in which God works. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel. He's sort of the governor or the king. Zerubbabel, and then Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. When I consider the reasons for which we planted the church and the, the greatest need for the church in London and indeed in the whole of the Western world, 
I don't think there's anything that's more urgent than that we should see something of a move of God like we're seeing here in this chapter. A wind of God's spirit upon God's people to bring about zealous and passionate commitment to his name. And uh, I think we've seen many good things happening across churches. In, certainly in, in, in London, London is extraordinary in that there is much higher attendance of church across this city than there is across the whole of the UK. And something or a reversal of that trend that we're seeing of death to churches across this country. But actually London bucks that trend and is unique and different in that sense. Probably largely driven by mass immigration and and different people groups who actually count their faith as precious to them. But despite all the good things that I think we're seeing in the city, somehow the character of what you can call revival, which is those unique and marked moments in history when God moves upon Christians' hearts and gets hold of them in an extraordinary way. I don't think that what we're seeing is anything like that. I think we're seeing good things happen, things that we can give thanks to God for, encouraging things happen, with people coming to faith, people coming and being part of his kingdom, churches being planted all over the place. And it's, it's wonderful, and we give thanks to God for this. But it seems to me that we don't see the same urgency, the same emphasis on holiness, the same level of zeal and of passion, the same kind of sacrifice and fruit in the lives of individual Christians that you see when God does something special as he was doing in this book here. I think what I'm trying to describe to you is the kind of move of God that only God can do. It seems to me that a lot of what you, the good that we see in churches is explainable on human terms. But when God moves upon people, you see something that is totally inexplicable. And something which almost takes your breath away. Now I know that this isn't the norm. I know that when we see that kind of revival happening in people's hearts and lives in the whole communities. That's not the norm, in a sense. And we should give thanks for the ordinary ways in which the church continues just to incrementally flourish and grow when we give ourselves to the preaching of God's word and the opening understanding of the gospel and worship and all these kinds of things. And these are wonderful, wonderful things. But as I meditate on what's going on in this chapter, think about the needs of this city, There's something of a yearning, isn't there, that God would do more. We see little hints of it in individuals. I love it when we have the opportunity to talk with ones and twos of you and you see God moving in your hearts. You think, well, there's something extraordinary going on in you and it's the work of God. But when you see this mass movement of God working across whole groups of people, this is the kind of thing I'm wanting you to understand and grasp what was happening in this book. And the question that I want to bring to this passage that we're looking at is, well, how does God do it? What are the marks when he moves across people in this way? And I see seven things going on in these short verses, which are characteristic of every time you see God moving in history in an extraordinary way. Are you interested in the ways that God moves? Is this something that captivates your heart and your mind and your passion and your prayer life? 
I trust that as we open up these verses, God's going to recapture you with a hunger and a desire that will drive you to your knees as you cry out, God, would you do this among us? God, would you change us? Would you grip hold of our lives? Take me. Lord, even if you won't do it across the whole church or the whole city, will you get hold of my life in the way that we're understanding that he does here? Let me try and describe for you some of the things that are going on here. What are the marks then of the ways that God moves? Here's the first. Very often when God is working in an extraordinary way, when he wants to start something beautiful and, and historic and uh, something notable that you want to write about in the history books, very often God begins with just one or two who become kind of leaders of a fresh movement of God. You're seeing it here in this chapter that, again, we keep hearing these names crop up of the leaders of the people. Verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. It says that they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Leadership is not something that's very much spoken about or analyzed in the Bible. Very rarely is it analyzed or um, spoken about in a kind of objective way. But all the way through the Bible, you're looking at the importance of leaders and of leadership. And uh, it's implicit in everything that you see happening in the scriptures. Right from the very start, the leaders of the human race, Adam and Eve, dragging the whole of humanity and indeed of creation into ruin. And then God continually finding men and women, individuals who are different, upon whom he puts his hand and gets hold of them. Beginning with the character like Abraham. Abraham. All the way through you read the Bible, you see God's desire and passion to work through individual men and women whose lives are totally devoted to him. So whilst leadership isn't analyzed in that kind of outside way, it's nevertheless always assumed that God works through men and women as individuals. Now when we talk about leadership these days, we're talking about a subject that we've become a little bit bored of, become overly familiar, because few things are emphasized more in secular society as well as in the church and the importance and of quality, high-caliber leaders and of the techniques that you need to master in order to become an influential person in the world. Some of the biggest selling books repeatedly, uh, some that have sold for decades and the new ones that are coming out all the time revolve around leadership, whether it's learning the techniques of how to win people and influence them or whether it's learning how to lead organizations from start to explosion and growth. Whole careers are built on the study and analysis of leadership. But here's the distinction. When you look at the Bible, the reason that there's rarely an attention attention given to the techniques and the styles and the skills of leadership is because it seems to me that leaders in the Bible don't lead with that kind of self-consciousness of their own abilities. Their eyes and their hearts are actually fixed upon God. There isn't that eyes turning inwards and that self-assessment continually of their own abilities and skills. There is rather a man or a woman whose, whose eyes have been fixed upon the living God in a way that they have been captivated and gripped by him. They've almost become obsessed by him. Not almost, entirely. They've become obsessed by him. And then leadership follows naturally from a passionate heart. 
a person going in a direction that's different to other people. Somebody whose whole life is swept up and gripped by the things of God. And so these kinds of people set the spiritual temperature for whole groups of people, often unselfconsciously. And sometimes they do it for worse, as leaders drag people down into the pit. Sometimes they do it for better when their hearts are captivated and rewon by the living God. If you've read the books of one or two kings and the books of one or two chronicles, which tells the stories of successive kings and kingdoms throughout the history of Israel and of Judah, you can't come away without realizing the vitality, the importance of an individual and of a leader and of how these kings could have the power to drag the whole people away from God or the power to bring them back to repentance. But God doesn't always work through people who are positioned in, with the office of leadership like the kings and the priests. He works all through, also through outliers, these individuals like Haggai. He isn't given the office of prophet. God put his hand upon him and then he's brought into service of the king. It seems to me to be a rare thing when groups of people arise above the spirituality of their leaders, which is sobering when you're in the position of leadership. But we give thanks that because we are the church, we don't just look to earthly leaders, we look to Jesus. When it names these men, Zerubbabel, he represents the king. Joshua represents the priest. Haggai represents the prophet. Remember we were hearing a few weeks ago about how Jesus, in himself, wrapped up all of these offices in himself. He became our king, our prophet, and our priest. He is our leader. Which means that you and I are not doomed to living lives of apathy because people around us are apathetic. We fix our eyes upon our leader Jesus and our whole lives can be gripped and swept up in the purposes of God. Friends, if you want your life to make a difference, can I encourage you, even today, to let your whole life be about Jesus and his kingdom? When God wants to do something special, he begins through one or two people. This happens all the way through history. Here's the second thing. Very often when God is doing something extraordinary, special, especially in times of revival in the church, he starts not in a widespread way, but very often with a small remnant of the people. Again, this is what's happening here. It says, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people. Now, what's a remnant? A remnant is a kind of devoted minority. There is the majority, the crowd. And then there is the remnant, the devoted minority. And the pattern throughout the Old Testament very often was that as the people were dragged away by their idolatry and their desire to pursue things other than God himself, Nevertheless, there would always be a kind of rebel community within the community. People who said, this, no, we belong to the living God. A kind of godly remnant whose hearts were set upon him. 
the strange thing about this point in history is that all that's left is the remnant. Whereas before the exile, the Israelites had gone through successive cycles of worshipping idols and then being brought back to the living God, worshipping idols and then being brought back to the living God, God decided that he would cure that idolatry once and for all. And he dealt with it definitively, finally, by allowing his people to be conquered by Nebuchadnezzar these 70 years earlier than this book was written. And he brought all the people back into Babylon, into slavery. But he did it with an intention. In the book of Isaiah, he talks a little bit about this. He says that a remnant will return. And he's talking prophetically of, you know, all the Israelites are going to be brought into Babylon. But then he says, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. God's intention was that, okay, if if, if you as a people find that your hearts are constantly seduced away from me, and away from from worship of me, the true worship of me, into idolatry, and I keep having to win you over again and again and again, God says, I'm going to deal with your idolatry once and for all. And he cut away the vast majority of the people of Israel and left only a remnant who came back to the land. And from that point in history onwards, the Israelites never became idolaters again. They never worshipped the false gods of the nations around them. They never worshipped Baals and Asherahs and all these kind of weird gods that were worshipped at the time. It never happened. Because from then on, God was said, I, I want the people, my people to be the remnant, to be the devoted minority. And so he took hold of their hearts. He took hold of their lives. And so also, we see something of this pattern going on. Whenever we look at church history in times of revival, very often you can see the church as a whole drifting into kind of apathy, secularism, and to the point where the church doesn't look very much different from the world around it. I think that's the saddest thing you can say about the church is when they're not different. When there's nothing countercultural, when there's nothing radical, when there's nothing unique. At that point, men and women come into church and they think, why, why would I go here when I could be having a lie-in on a Sunday morning? If I'm not being challenged, if, if my life isn't being given a solution, if the message isn't cutting me down and then healing me and building me up, then why would I come at all? But then as God moves, he very often moves among just a small group of people. You read stories like the stories of the Hebridean revival. The Hebrides, these islands that lie out just beyond the coast of Scotland. And these communities, you know, though Christian in name, had experienced extraordinary revivals in the 1940s and 50s when there would be these churches where people, just a few Maybe old ladies were just continually praying. They were kind of a godly remnant within the church. And then God's spirit blew upon the churches and began to renew them. And suddenly, people were feeling the conviction of God's spirit and desire to know him. People who hadn't been going to church at all start coming into the churches. And something special and unique happens. But it begins with a committed few. I think this is one of the reasons, just as an aside, why... We always have to be planting new churches because very often established churches have a life cycle and it's sad and you don't want to see it happen but they have a life cycle where 
they become more interested in the politics of church and more interested in the assets and the buildings and more interested in maintaining a tradition than they are in seeking the face of the living God. And so what God does is he disregards those established churches and he starts something new within a small and committed group of people. A remnant is brought into being. One of the first marks is that God starts to work in just a few people. When I hear about groups in our church who decide, oh, we're going we're to pray every week together, the three of us, but we're committed to doing it. That is the kind of thing you know God's working in. God would rather have a, a small band of faithful and obedient people than a crowd whose hearts are kind of split and lukewarm and divided over whether they're really truly committed to him. We're so impressed, aren't we, by churches and that, that gather great crowds. And I don't think that that's what God looks at. My encouragement to you is don't, don't be part of the majority. Be part of the minority. Be part of that devoted minority. He gets hold of one or two leaders. He gets hold of a remnant. Here's the third thing that you see God doing at times of revival. He fosters a kind of renewed fear of himself. It says here, at the end of verse 12, almost like an aside, and the people feared the Lord. Now, there's no way they could have been experiencing the fear of the Lord up to that point, because nobody fears God and allows his temple to languish in ruins, right? Something new was going on in their heart, something extraordinary. And as much as you want to assume that the fear of God is a given within God's people, that is clearly not the case. I've been describing how churches get distracted from the pursuit of the things of God. And it seems to me that, that, that Christians move in one of two directions when the fear of God vanishes from their corporate experience of who he is and their own individual walk with him. One of two things happen. On the one hand, perhaps the more obvious thing, is that we move into a kind of worldliness, which is to say, when you don't have a fear of God, you, you take sin lightly. And it becomes easier and easier to live a life that's, that's mixed, to the point where your conscience becomes harder and harder, and you no longer feel the prang of the, of the voice of the Spirit when he's, when he's summoning you back to himself. And then you're only a hair's breadth away from not being a Christian at all, it seems. On the other hand, though, and this is probably the more surprising thing, when people don't fear God, they also become religious. They become more devoted to the rituals and the externals of doing religion. Why, why would I say that that's a lack of the fear of God? Well, think about it. What is, what is religious ri- ritual? It's an effort to be in control. An effort to be in control of your spirituality before God. Thinking that you can in some way better yourself before him through a set routine or ritual, liturgy. 
way of life. But no one who has really encountered God has thought that the answer to their heart's problem was a bit more religion. Nobody's lived under that illusion when they've experienced the fear of God in a real way. They've fallen on their face in desperation. You set up for yourself what I'm describing here, the contrast in Jesus' parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector who come into the temple to pray in Luke chapter 18, and how the Pharisee, on the surface of things, a better man. He's a religious man. What he lacks, though, is the fear of God because he comes into God's presence arrogantly. I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. Now, his confidence is in his life and his lifestyle. He thinks that he can come to God because he he thinks that God can be controlled. He has no fear of God. But the tax collector comes into God's presence, beating his chest. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. One of the first marks, though, when God is moving in a genuine way upon people is that they begin to experience something of that holiness that breeds fear in them and sometimes even a kind of despair that is necessary before you taste of the grace of God. The despair of trying to save yourself in that religious way or the despair of the way you've been rebellious and kind of walking in your sin up to now And the fear of God cures all of those instincts in us, in our hearts, and brings us back to our faces where we say, Lord, I have no solution but the death of Jesus for me on the cross. His blood poured out for me. There is nothing I can do. So fear and grace are not incompatible. It's not as though a church where the grace of God is understood and preached and experienced is is a church where they don't also have the fear of God. On the contrary, It's the fear of God that makes the grace of God taste sweeter. If you've never felt that your life could be in danger on account of this living God, the true God, if you've never felt the fear of God, then friend, there's a question of whether you've ever really sought His grace. Here's a fourth mark of what He does in people or how he works in times of revival. God always seems to use preachers, messengers, to do something special among his people. It's been repeated all the way through this first chapter, but just in verse 12, it says, They obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet. The biblical kind of perspective on this is that from start to finish, when God wants to do something special among people, he he uses words and he uses messengers who are willing to announce and declare his words. Has it ever struck you that when God sent his son Jesus, what was his profession? Don't say carpenter. His profession, the calling to which God set him aside was to be A preacher. It was in his preaching that people experienced the most power. They were awed by his miracles, but it was his preaching that turned their hearts and lives upside down, wasn't it? He preaches as one who has authority, they said, and not like the scribes and the Pharisees. You look at the life of Paul the Apostle. 
the pioneer missionary, the first man in the church whose whole life was about going out and bringing the gospel to the nations. Now, we have a lot of things that we call missions work these days. It comes under a lot of different guises and, 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 and methods and methodologies. But biblically speaking, a lot of them have very little to do with what God's strategy for mission is. Paul did not go into the cities of Asia Minor and open up cafes. He didn't go into the cities of Asia Minor and open up hospitals. I'm not trying to rubbish or say that these things are not important, but it wasn't his method. He didn't go out there and start just befriending people. Slowly, slowly, hopefully, three, four, five, ten years later, they might talk to me about what I believe. It wasn't his method. He didn't go out and build houses for poor people. I mean, he was himself pretty poor, so he needed a house. He didn't have one. That wasn't his technique or his strategy or what he would describe as as mission's work or as being an apostle of Jesus Christ. For him to be sent and to be sent by Jesus was to be sent with a message to be a preacher. Everything else is kind of decoration for the mission work of God in the world. Sometimes it's important, sometimes it's valuable, but don't assume that that is the mission. It's not. Paul went to preach and to preach to form a community by his preaching. Allow his preaching to shape the people to become the family of God in, in every location where he went, to lay down foundations by his teaching about Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so this is, again, what you see happening all through history. What happened during the Reformation? Do you know anything of our heritage as Protestants? I'll tell you what happened. What happened was this. The the word of God got hold of a few individuals and they became preachers. You see, the churches had been languishing under a total misunderstanding of what God was about and what the gospel was because all they had was Latin sermons preached to them. And they didn't speak Latin. They spoke German or Anglo-Saxon or whatever languages were probably not Anglo-Saxon, that was dead by that point. (laughs) But they spoke other languages, and they were listening to these sermons they didn't understand. They were going through the motions, they go into church, they nod, they cross their heart, they go and um, put money in the offering and all this stuff, but their hearts were not changed. And then these guys, the names you'll recognize, like Luther and Calvin, Zwingli, what they became is they became preachers, and their preaching reformed and transformed the whole of Europe. They started to do something that had been forgotten for centuries, which was that they would open books of the Bible and start with verse 1, explain it, move to verse 2, explain it, move to verse 3, explain it, which is roughly the pattern that we're doing here. Because they recognized that the power to change lives and form communities is in the Bible. This is God's method. His desire is to communicate who he is through his word. So when God wants to do something extraordinary and special, very often he starts by getting hold of men and women whose hearts have been gripped by the word of God and then changing them, turning them into announcers, preachers of the gospel. I know that as a strategy it's been rubbished, never more so than in the last century, I think. A lot of people have had a big downer on preaching is the importance of it because they think that we're beyond it. We've, as, you know, as a society... We're now people who 
are more likely to be gripped by drama or by images and by, um, by media and all these things. And, and yet, time and again, when people abandon this as a central way of God changing his, people's hearts and lives, those churches die. The Bible's really clear on this, friends. When Paul's telling Timothy how he should lead his church, again and again and again, this is what he keeps telling him to do. But I'll just read you one ver- a couple of verses on it. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I know that we have a little bit of a kind of re-enchantment with spoken word going on as well in our culture, not least because of the influence of um, all the talks that are available online, especially the TED movement, Thinkers, Engineers, Designers, and those 17 to 18-minute talks that inspire wonder in the heart. And they are beautiful things. It's amazing to watch someone stand up and with nothing but their words weave a story and a message that suddenly brings hope of a possible betterment of life and of the world. But friends, you know, that is not, that is not preaching. Preaching is not really concerned with skill and narrative and the kinds of techniques that are available and that kind of way of doing a presentation or a talk. Preaching is bringing the authoritative word of God into people's hearts and saying, this is what God says in that confrontational way. So sometimes you probably wonder, why is it that we, we have preaching in this church? Maybe you've come from a different church background and thought, what on earth is this guy doing? Friends, we're trying to follow the pattern of what Jesus did, what the apostles did, what churches have done through history when they've seen the move of God across people's hearts. Maybe for some of you that's something God is stirring in you. Come and talk to me. Here's the fifth thing. God stirred within them a renewed passion for obedience and action, forward action. You see it going on there in verse 12 again. It says they obeyed the voice of the Lord and the, uh, their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God sent him. They obeyed. They acted. It says a little bit later in verse 14, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. When God is doing something extraordinary and special in his people's hearts, suddenly they experience a massive reorientation of what their lives are for and about. Part of this is a negative thing. Part of it is a turning your back on stuff. You know, for these people, we're describing last week how their whole life and concern was in the betterment of their households. They needed to work hard in their fields, in times of drought, in times of shortage, in order to feed their children and improve their homes and extend their homes. And really, they were pursuing all the same things that modern-day Londoners are pursuing, in which you, if you sit with the current, will naturally imbibe as the priorities of what life is about. And so the first thing that's needed in order to really obey Jesus is a 
is a cutting away, a turning from. There's a negative aspect to this, that in order to live a life that's dedicated to him, you have to be able to say no to certain things. Addressing your heart and understanding that there is a sacrifice. If you've been trying to live the Christian life in a way that does not bring you to a point of sacrifice, then that is not Christianity. Because when Jesus called people to himself to be his disciples, he called them to a death, didn't he? A death of their ambitions, a death of their selfishness, a death of living for their own agenda. So for these people, it meant really a death to those pursuits because they had to give up time and energy and resources that they could be spending on them and their families and their households and their farms in order to <laughs> trek up into the hills and go and get the word like, Jesus, like God asked for to come back and build the temple. There's this negative aspect, this turning away from stuff which has been distracting, stuff which has been pulling your heart away from Jesus. What is it in your life that does that to you? What is it in your life that you could do without? Because as much as you try and control this thing, it seems always to be your chief obsession. And you think, I can manage it. I can, I can run after this and be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. But again and again, that is the thing which pulls you to itself. What is that thing for you? When God starts moving on people's hearts, bringing them to this point of obedience, they want to kill that stuff. They want to turn from it. And they don't care what it costs. Because he's worth it. And the positive side of it is that they, they started to bring themselves, their gifts, their abilities, to up to the Temple Mount. They said, I'm here and I'm available. Set me to work. And they start bringing their material goods as well. Dragging the lumber, the wood, in order to start reconstructing and repaneling the temple which had been stripped and laid bare. God brings people to that point of obedience when they no longer want to sit in compromise and on the fence. Saying, my life is about this, but it's also about this, and I'm trying to hold all things in tension. They say, no, Jesus swallows up the whole thing. I live for him and him alone. That's what happens in a person's heart when they're won by him. Here's a sixth mark. When God is working like this among a people, there kind of emerges a sense of his presence with them. This is a very, very difficult thing to explain. So I'm not going to use my own words. I'm going to use a preacher called Michael Eaton, who I respect, and he put it like this. He said also, it's difficult to put into words, but it means that God is real to us. Allow me just to show you what I'm talking about here. It said in verse 13, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. They heard it through their ears, and I'm sure they would have felt it in a very real sense in their community life. Everything about what it meant to be in Israel at that point was beginning to change. There would have been a buzz in the community as hearts were recaptured by God. People who for years never spoke about the living God suddenly were talking about him. People who had been 
trapped in habits and lifestyles that they knew were offensive to God were being changed and transformed and walking after him. This is what happens when the presence of God rests on the people. So Michael Eaton put it like this. He said, spiritual things come to us with great clarity. There's a liveliness in all that we do. God's presence is like lubricating oil that brings joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. It's a quote from Psalm 16. When God is with his people, enemies are overcome, prayer is answered, unexpected events take place. When God gives a consciousness of his presence, his people change. They become fearless and confident in faith. And new joy takes hold of them. Even their very appearance begins to change. A note of joy comes into their lives. They become thankful people, praising people. They become confident about the future. They refuse to panic when distresses and alarms come. God is among them. Why should they fear? When God is among his people, they become sincere and clean in motivation. They become people of integrity because God is real to them. I read that and I feel a sense of a groan. I think God's done some beautiful things even among our fairly new community. I certainly have seen extraordinary things happening in some individuals. But I read this and I I see it in the Bible and I've read about it in history and I think, God, what would it look like if we sensed that you were with us in this way? Lastly, and it's related to that, when God is working in this very direct way among his people, there is a kind of a stirring of their spirits as the Holy Spirit starts doing extraordinary things in their hearts. And this is what's happening here. It says, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. You know the difference, don't you, between duty and spirit. Between dry service and spirit engagement. Between the singing of words and spirit-flowing, passionate worship between the dutiful dropping of your coins in the box or the clicking of your transfer from your your bank account online to the delighted, spirit-led, God, I must give to your work. You know the difference, don't you, when your spirit is gripped by God? And weirdly, not weirdly, predictably, this is how God had worked before in the building of tabernacle and temple. The first time was with the tabernacle in the book of Exodus when Moses had been given this, these plans like, a, like an architect's blueprint for what the tabernacle, the tent of worship was going to look like and then he needed the resources to, to, to make it. He needed a lot of gold and f- beautiful fabrics. And you know these guys were walking around in the wilderness so it wasn't like they just had loads of this stuff knocking around. The people had to sacrifice to make this thing. And what happens in Exodus 35? It says they came. Everyone whose heart stirred him. 
and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting for all its service and for the holy garments. There's no coercion there. There's no duty there. People sense in their gut, everything I have belongs to God, and I'm giving it back to him. So much willingness. Then the same thing happened when David began collecting resources because he felt that the tabernacle wasn't enough. He didn't want God just to have a tent anymore. He felt it's time now that we're settled in the land and Jerusalem is the capital. It is time that we have a stone temple for the worship and the honor of the living God. So David, that, that vision was birthed in his heart and God endorsed the vision and gave his son Solomon the task of actually building it. But before Solomon could set to work, David made sure that he had all the resources for the building of that first temple. And so in the 1 Chronicles 29, there's a chapter in which the people are bringing their offerings so that they're saying, we're going to stockpile resources so that this temple can be built. And there are these, these similar words spoken. It says, the leaders of fathers' houses made their free will offerings. Again, no one was coercing them. There wasn't a, it wasn't like a tax where David had to go around and make, check who had given the most and whether they'd given enough and the proportion of their, their, their possessions. It's, they were free will offerings. This is over and above. This is lavishness. And then it says, then the people rejoiced because they'd given willingly, for with a whole heart they'd offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. I've had the pleasure of seeing this sometimes. Seeing when people get swept up in what God is doing and no amount of sacrifice is too much for the work of God. (coughs) Friends, if we want to see a a church here that's going to make an impact in, in this city, it's going to call for the dedication of your whole life as a free will offering. And it's going to call for heaps more cash to make this happen. When people get swept up in what God's doing and see it as the most important thing, instead of compulsion, there is joy and pleasure in bringing God our lives and our resources. Instead of hesitation and delay, there is, there is an immediacy. Now is the time. Instead of a withholding or a kind of begrudging or a kind of sectioning off or saying, I can do that much, there's a lavishness of pouring out. And instead of there being a kind of mixed motives, there's passion. There's desire to totally pour out everything to God. That's what's happening here in the book of Haggai. It's a precious moment. It happened also in the birth of the early church in Acts. The people came, and there was such a beautiful harmony among them, wasn't there? God was with them, and the spirits of the people were stirred. What we are doing is going to change the world. Even if we are just a small group in Jerusalem, I think there was that conviction, that inner conviction. What we are doing is going to change the world. This gospel is for the nations. And I want to sow into this kingdom, into this church, that God might be glorified. Friends, how are you to respond to the things I'm talking about today? Well, let me talk to you first as an individual. 
I want to say to you that you should never underestimate what God can do through one person when God gets a hold of you. Even if we don't get to see this kind of revival power that I long to see across this city and certainly in our church, I've nevertheless had the privilege of meeting individuals who sort of embody these things. And it has very little to do with whether you're in leadership or not. It has very little to do with any explainable factors like your background or your intelligence or your resources or your experiences. It's just a simple thing. God has gotten a hold of you. When that happens to individuals, it seems to me that they, they don't need to be appointed to positions of leadership. It just flows out naturally. They can't help but influence people around them because they're running hard after God. Is it true of you? Is the Spirit sort of stirring you as we've opened up this first chapter? Has He been stirring you, highlighting areas in your life, the stuff that you need to cut away, pointing out, out ways in which He wants you to be dedicated and devoted to Him? Is the Spirit being stirred? Then respond to Him. Respond to him wholeheartedly. Don't hold back. Those who hold back will only ever look back with a life that's marked by regret. If you're not a Christian, this is actually what God is calling you into. He calls you to be a disciple, which is to lay down everything for him. But the first step always on that journey to discipleship is believing on Jesus. The first step is understanding that Jesus is your leader, he's a king, and that he gave his life. He gave his life willingly for you. He did not hold back. He was sacrificed himself. But he did it so that you could experience totally clean conscience. And a total transformation of life. And a new purpose and a new joy in life. So if you're not a Christian, friend, it's not difficult to make that step. It is just as easy as saying to God, today I want to follow Jesus. I'm fed up of living for myself. I understand that in the end, what matters is that I worship your son. And then saying, God, I give my life to him. I want to be his disciple. If you want to pray that, pray it today. You don't need me to hold your hand. Just come straight to him. You don't need a mediator. You don't need someone to work, you know, work things out between you and Jesus. He invites you. Just pray directly to him. But then I also want to talk to us as kind of a congregation. I, I long to see just increasing fervor and love and passion and joy in who we are and the way we follow Christ. A few of the things that will be true of us when we respond to this stuff is to do with praying and giving and working. I think when, you know, when I've read the accounts of God, of revival, it seems sometimes actually the prayer meetings are more 
are better attended than Sunday services, which is offensive to the preacher, but delightful to God. Maybe you haven't yet become someone who's regularly giving to the church and to the kingdom through the church. This is not, you know, I think people make all kinds of excuses, like we live under grace, not under law, all that kind of stuff. Actually, the New Testament just expects this. There's no hesitation. Because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is becomes a kind of thermometer where, where your passions lie. But it's also a kind of a thermostat because you get to be proactive. You get to control where your heart is oriented by making the right choices. I want to be more dedicated to you and your people and your work in the world. Well, one of the first things you can do is start clicking. Log on. I don't want to make this sound crass, but friends... It will touch you there. And if we can't talk about that, then there's something wrong and there's some part of our heart that we're we're holding back from God, isn't there? But also, there'll be an engagement with the work. I don't know how. God will show you. I think whenever somebody sincerely comes to God and says, Lord, I don't know what to do with my time, my life, my gifts, but I want to live for you, it will not be long until God starts to show you ways in which you can do that. Part of it is through your normal work, which you then realize you can do for his glory. Your day-to-day, your job, or looking after the kids. But you know also that that doesn't occupy all your time and attention and energy, does it? It shouldn't do. There's always margin, there's, there's extra that you want to live a life of significance and meaning for God in other ways. Now, I can't tell you what that's going to look like. But when your desire is to offer your life to God in a wholehearted way, and you start asking him, God, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? How can I, how can I do something for you, Lord Jesus? Take me. Use me. When that becomes a sincere desire, it isn't long before God starts showing you ways that he can use you in his kingdom and opening up opportunities. Is that something that you want to do? Go up to the hills, get some wood, and get to work. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you empty-handed. We come to you with a kind of longing, yearning, Lord, that you will Work in us the work that only you can accomplish. And I pray, Lord, that our church will be marked by zealous, passionate engagement with your mission in this world to build your church, your temple, to make Christ known. And Lord, that we will find that increasingly for us as individuals, our lives are, are not, no longer mixed no longer drawn this way and that like the double-minded man that James describes. But our whole lives are given to you. Everything we have is yours. Every gift, every talent, 
all of our resources and energy and relationships. Thank you, Lord, that in living such a life, there is great reward now and into eternity, even if there is great sacrifice and cost. Lord, I don't want to get to the end of my life and think I held back from Jesus. Because Jesus, you're worthy of everything. Lord Jesus, you alone have given your life for me. I belong to you. Thank you that we can all say, if we've come to know you, I belong to you. You purchased me at great price. Now grip us, Lord. Amen.